Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Episode 9, and this week we're shining a spotlight on the mental health of children, with a guest who's committed to curbing the numbers of self-harm and suicide among children. Appointed in 2013, Megan Mitchell is Australia's first National Children's Commissioner at the Australian Human Rights Commission. In her work to date, Megan has focused on the prevalence of suicide and intentional self-harm in children and young people, the impact of family and domestic violence on children and young people, the oversight of children and young people in correctional detention, and the experiences of young parents and their children. All right, welcome to the Pebble in the Pond podcast. My name is Sam Stewart, the CEO of the Australian New Zealand Mental Health Association. With me today, I have Megan Mitchell, uh, who's the National Child's Commissioner for the Australian Human, Human Rights Commission. Welcome to the show, Megan. Thank you, sir. Thanks for coming along and, and, uh, and offering your time to talk with us today. Uh, um, tell us a little bit about your role uh, and how you got into it. Yes, well, I'm the first National Children's Commissioner for Australia. Um, and before that, I was the New South Wales Commissioner for Children and Young People. So I had a bit of form in the commissioner space. Um, and prior to that, um, I'd been working in child protection heading up child protection departments, juvenile justice, uh, and out of home care kind of environments. So that was me and the sort of most recent iteration of me. Uh, And I was aware that the role uh, had come up after many years. Um, It is a requirement to have a National Children's Commissioner under the Convention of the Rights of the Child which Australia ratified back in 1990, but it took until 2013 to get one. Uh, But I was aware that it was coming up, as were many other people who cared about kids. Uh, And I was asked to put in an application, and so I did. So 2013 from 1990, is that what you said? Yeah. So why do you think it took the 23 years? You know, part of it is sort of the politics of this country and the um, federated states that we have. We have had children's commissioners in most states and territories um, for 10 years or so uh, prior to that. Um, But this was the first national one. So have you always had a a passion or a um, a connection with kids? And has it always been something that you've wanted to work in that space? Yeah, I think I I have a real... um, I have a real commitment to the most disadvantaged in our society and to doing what I can to elevate them. Uh, and I think kids 
are in that space because they can't vote. They rarely have a voice, and particularly in decisions that affect them. And, um, and they lack power that we as adults do. So for me, it's about transferring some of that power to them and building their capacity and also shining a light on particular groups of kids who are doing worse um, yeah. in our country. We have a very wealthy country, but some children uh, don't, aren't able to claim their rights uh, yeah. at all. And so tell me a bit more about the significantly disadvantaged um, part of that. What are we seeing? Is it more social uh, determinants? Is it economic? Uh, is it where they live? What, what are the leading factors for that? Well, it's all those factors. Yeah. And I think sometimes we struggle to understand how all those things work together to disadvantage children and not provide them with the opportunities that other children have. But in particular, we have groups like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children who are overrepresented in, in, in systems like um, the care system, um, the child protection system, the juvenile justice system. And being overrepresented in those systems uh, has a significant influence on their lives and the opportunities they have uh, in life. And so we really need to um, reduce the flow of those kids into those systems, that's one yeah. thing, but we also need to provide them with targeted support that um, that is respectful of their cultural needs and, their, and the cultural safety that they require in those spaces. It's, uh, it's very interesting, and I, I know that there's been a lot of statistics uh, out um, recently, and some of these just quickly. Between 2007 and 8 and 2016 and 17, there was just under 36,000 hospitalizations for uh, intentional self-harm in children aged between three to 17 years. And the number of hospitalizations in this gap has almost doubled uh, since the prior period. I mean, those stats are, are quite alarming, aren't they? They're very alarming. And I think we should, as a nation, be alarmed. Um, I think what it's showing us is this is a, this is a, an issue for kids. They're experiencing anxiety and demonstrating it in, um, in these self-harm statistics. Uh, and we're not seeing it or responding to it in the ways we should be. And can I say that's just the tip of the iceberg because yeah. that's only kids who end up in hospital. Yes. And those kids who self-harm don't uh, go to the hospital. Um, and so we really need to be working with kids to understand what they're feeling, experiencing, and um, ensuring we give them the help and support they need when they need it. Um, I'd also say that um, much of that, those statistics also relate to self-poisoning and mostly girls. And so there's something about girls' experiences uh, as growing up as an adolescent uh, that we need to understand better as well. But um, self-harm is one of those hidden things. You can't get these statistics um, regularly, or they are part of mm. publications, regular public publications. You need to ask specifically for this. And I think given the number, the sheer numbers and the, uh, the problems behind what it's telling us, we really need this information available to the public, researchers, academics, practitioners, clinicians, on a regular basis, so we can interrogate it and find out what's going on. Talking about the data, obviously, historically, I think before you started your role, uh, the data was really hard to come by. 
how is the data uh, collection uh, improving? I know it's really important, so you can try and understand what's happening out there, but how, how important is the data and how much has it improved since you first started? Well, data tells us a story, uh, or tells us part of the story of children's experiences and lives. And the more we can break it down into different age groups, um, people, children from different backgrounds, um, the more we're able to think about when and what different groups of children need. So when I came into the role, it was clear to me that so much data about child wellbeing is missing in the Australian context. And that goes across the whole, all the sorts of domains that are in the mm. Convention of the Rights of the Child that mm. we have signed up to and promised to. Yes. Uh, promised, made a whole lot of promises to kids under that. But this is across the health area, the mental health area, the education area, the disability area. That's just some of the areas where there's a lot of missing information. Uh, and without that information, we can't build effective interventions or target them at the times and to the kids that we need to. Um, in the area of suicide and self-harm, uh, the only data that was regularly available when I came into the role was uh, that was suicide data from 15 to 24 year olds. Well, that's not a very helpful mm. um, bit of information because 15 year olds are at school and 24 year olds are somewhere else. They're working mm. or at uni or wherever they're making families. Um, yeah. and, and so I really needed to start, um, start asking for this data in different ways. And now, thankfully, we do now have data for um, children under 17, um, from five to 17. And so that is telling us a story. It may not be a story we want to hear, but it, it's telling a story that suicide is a serious problem in Australia for children and the leading cause of death for children in that age group. Yeah, and, and, and the, the statistic of nearly 80% of, ch of child suicides are age, were aged between 15 and 17. That's, I mean, that's, these are people's lives. I mean, this is... Yeah, they're such a precious resource. It is preventable. Yeah. And this is part of kids crying for help, but we're not hearing it. Yeah. And we really need to engage with children to find out what they need to remove the barriers that they have for help seeking and what we need to do to change to be able to hear them when they do seek help. Yeah. I mean, a lot of kids, for instance, they don't want to talk to their parents about it because they want they think that they'll be judged. They don't even want to talk to the school counsellor because it's too close to them. They want anonymous ways of talking to somebody, like in a kid's helpline. And so we need to think about what are the different ways and motivations of kids that will open up opportunities for them to speak up and be heard and be able to get the support they need. Yeah, so redu reducing the friction points, the barriers for them to seek help, but then also making that help readily and accessible. And um, the, the help has to be good. Yeah. Um, a lot of young people have said to me the reason that they don't seek help is they tried once and they got really bad service. Yeah. So why would they do it again? And so when we do help them, it needs to be really good and effective help that has taken into account what they've said, what has happened to them, what they're feeling, what they're thinking, and that respects that um, and honours the way they're feeling rather than judges them, tells them to get over it, 
um, tells them not to worry their parents so much. Yeah. Um, these are deep. These are deeply felt things by children, and at a time when their brain's developing in a really mm. um, rapid way, uh, and when their body's de developing in a yeah. rapid way, as is their social and emotional yeah. world as well. So there's a lot going on for kids mm. um, as they grow up. We need to be conscious of that, but we also need to be helping them at that to seek help if they need it, so that they can get through what is a difficult period for many kids, yeah. including myself it was, <laughs> yeah. and I'm sure it was uh, for, for many others. Yes. Um, but they need protective factors around them so that they can get through those times. And the, and the definition for the children uh, with your role, is it 3 to 17? Is it, is no, it it's 0 to not, 17. 0 to 17, okay. Yeah. So, so it's any, and it's really those kids who don't vote yeah. <laughs> and who don't have much of a say uh, in the world. What a challenge. I mean, how, how do you, uh, is a big part of what you're doing actually going out and talking to uh, the, the demographic? That's a big part of what I do and a wonderful part of what I yeah. do. It's, it's such a privilege to be able to go and talk to the source because they're the experts in their own lives and they constantly amaze me with their wisdom and their insights and their great ideas. Um, so we shouldn't be afraid of talking to kids. Um, they, they are ready to talk to us yeah. uh, if we treat them with respect and we know what we're doing. Yeah, it, it, do, you, do you feel like we need to get a lot better when you look at, at the, the statistics and the challenges that we're facing and, and a lot of them are going downwards as far as they're not improving? Um, do you think the opportunity is earlier intervention or detection? Do you think that there's a role to play there for identifying these things earlier? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the, in interrogating the data that I've looked at about suicide and self-harm, it's clear that children are starting to have suicidal ideation or self-harming ideation a lot earlier than we would have thought. Um, and a lot of the programs directed at young people are provided later in, in high school. And that's too late. And we can see that the massive increases in, say, suicidal um, behaviour is happening between the 12 and 13-year-old group and the 14 and 15. So we really need to be thinking about what can we do in those earlier years, yeah. even in primary school, to build a resilience of kids mm. and, and again, encourage help-seeking by them. And does that coincide, that period between the transition between primary school, high school? Absolutely. Is that, um, is that... And we know that that is a disruptive time yeah. in children's lives, let alone all that other brain and body development that's going on, uh, which can be quite challenging for children. Uh, they get quite self-conscious at that age as well uh, and sometimes they'll hide their problems uh, and that's exactly what we don't want. Yeah and, and with these school programs is that the ideal way to be able to reach these kids through the schooling system through primary school secondary school or are you, are you looking at a combined approach with with communities is it a holistic approach? Yeah look I think it's, it's a, a very important way because we know every kid goes to school um, or we hope they do. Yeah. Uh, but there are some kids who probably won't benefit from that yeah. from that channel. Uh, and I think then we've got to look, well, what else is in the, the community where we can promote those messages 
and give that information to children. And that could be anything from sporting clubs, sporting clubs yeah. to the health system, because um, everybody does visit the doctor, yeah. <laughs> um, to hospitals, that yeah. um, anywhere children go and their lives aren't segmented like adults like to segment um, lives. Their lives are just their lives. And so it's really important to look at what's happening for children in particular communities and target the places that they and their families go. The, uh, you mentioned that there's, uh, obviously these statistics are shocking and, and the fact that there is no national strategy to address suicide and self-harm among children. How do you, how are we, is this gonna change? Um, are we, do you feel like there's uh, some optimism ahead with where this is, with where this is going for, for this? Yeah, look, we've had lots of plans and strategies over the years focused on suicide and self-harm and mental health, and that's a good thing. But often children's needs are way down the list of priorities, and so I would like a very specific focus on children's needs in this space. Uh, the current Prime Minister has indicated a commitment to do something about uh, youth suicide and child mental health, and that's a very good thing. And um, so I'm going to approach him to be talking about what I've found and what are some of the things we can do, both in the research and the practice and program improvement area, that we can you know, build more of a, an offering to children uh, in this space across from early intervention through to the secondary interventions, those t targeted kids at risk, and then the tertiary education at uh, tertiary end as well. We need that spectrum of responses for kids. We, in 2013, when you came into the role, we're now in 2019, so about six and six years or so. Have uh, have you seen? Was your focus always on suicide, self harm prevention, or has it really started to shift? as you've been gathering the statistics and finding out, well, the reality of the, of the challenge? It was a very early focus for me, um, in part because when I went out and talked to people in my first year and I went on a tour, a national tour called the Big Banzer, um, and so I talked to a lot of kids, yep. uh, some face-to-face -face and some through surveys and, uh, and, and correspondence, but I also talked to a lot of child advocates um, including in the mental health space. And the mental health needs of kids and issues around suicide and self-harm was raised as a really critical issue. And so from that, I was determined to investigate it in some detail and at a national level, uh, and because it was something that was missing um, mm. in the policy space. I also had a personal experience in that my, my niece had started self-harming when she's about 14. She um, she wrote, she scratched the, um, the word fat into her arm and it was on her 14th birthday. Mm. She hid this from everybody for years. And, you know, so she self-harmed for years and years and years and it took a long time for her to recover from what was going on for her. So I had had that personal experience yeah. as well. And um, so, and I thought, well, this must happen to a lot more families yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, than we're aware of. Um, and so I really wanted to do something for her and other people like her as well. 
Well, you can. Uh, it's it's clearly obvious uh, that you've got a drive towards this, and uh, and we're we're very lucky to have you in this position. When you when you look at the impact of family violence uh, with children, is that is that something that's a really uh, an, another alarming statistic that's coming through the, in, yeah. in your research? Yes. Yeah, so um, when I did that work on self harm, what some when I was working on the area of self harm, it became clear to me in a number of cases where children had taken their own lives, um, also involved exposure to domestic violence um, within their family. Mm. And, and this was a bit of a surprise to me that it was such uh, a strong connection. Uh, and this was indicated, this is indicated through coronial information, but also something police have been telling me uh, and, and others. And so I did a bit of a deep dive into that issue as well. And indeed, there is a strong connection between kids' experience in the domestic violence space and their propensity to have suicidal mm. ideation or self-harming. Because you can imagine in an environment where there's, you know, the parents are in a violent situation or the kids get a victim as well um, and they're getting in the middle of all this hostility Mm. Uh, between parents, how difficult it must be for a child to learn, to do well, to remain calm, um, you know, and how distressed they must be and they don't have any control. And one of the things about self-harming that kids say is that it's about getting back some control in your life and that's how they feel about it sometimes. So it, it, to me... This is a real problem that we've got to address as a, a first order issue for Australia. There are too many kids experiencing domestic violence in their family situation, and this leads to all uh, many other breaches of their rights uh, and where they can't thrive as yeah. an individual. And, and if we just talk about uh, the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander uh, children population, yeah. how, how have you seen the challenges specifically as it relates to, to them? I mean, well, in terms of um, uh, in terms of suicide and self harm, they represent about um, just under six percent of the uh, child population of Australia. That's north to seventeen. Yeah. Uh, but they also represent around twenty percent of the child suicides. So that's an overrepresentation. We should be very concerned about, and. A number of those young people are living in environments where they're seeing adults who um, have also taken their own lives. So it becomes a bit normalised. They're also highly exposed to domestic violence in many communities. Mm. And so I think those two aspects, along with the basic um, disadvantages they face and the economic insecurity that they have, puts them at really high risk. So we really need to focus on those kids uh, to make sure we protect them uh, and that they can do well and, again, seek help if they need it and get the right culturally safe help. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel with the... Obviously, on one hand, it's interesting uh, to know the problem and, and identify what's happening out there. 
On the other side of it, the solution. Uh, where where do you see is the solution that we're heading towards, and and is it something you feel is going to happen in a timely manner? Yeah, well, I think we're a long way from a solution at this point. Okay. But we are. We do have a much better understanding of what's happening, and that's the first step yeah. in coming towards solutions. And I, there probably will be many solutions. Yeah because everybody's experience is different and, and everybody will need a different response in order uh, for them to, you know, to deal with whatever risk factors are in their lives um, and to build protective factors around themselves and to become resilient. Um, so, and one of the things I think we're really missing still is research that, in, that directly involves children. Uh, we tend to base our knowledge of what interventions work on the adult world or even the upper adolescent world, but we haven't really done research directly with children to find out what it is that's distressing them and what it is that they need to help them mm. um, overcome that distress. And what do you think is the best way to talk to them, to relate to them, to, to educate them? Is it through more experiential learning? Is it through role playing? Is it through just um, programs where other kids go and talk about it so that they tend to maybe relate more to people, you know, the other children than an adult coming in to talk about it? What, what do you, do you feel like there's a certain, uh, certain process that you think would work better than others? I think all children are different and I think it's really important to ask them what would work for them. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I can go and talk to them, but I think that's not enough. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's usually important with kids to have some sort of interactive activity mm. uh, so that they're engaged in the process. Uh, but they are quite capable of talking about very complex things. Mm. Um, and I think the other thing is you don't want to be distressing kids. So you need to work out ways to depersonalise your mm. conversations. Uh, and, but often talking about issues is actually strengthening and empowering for them rather than distressing for them because odds on there are people in their corner <laughs> helping them mm. to move through an issue and it's actually something that they really appreciate. And encouraging them to, to talk about it and speak up about it at that age will only serve them better That's as right. they move through life. And, and one of the key rights in the Convention on the Rights of the Child is Article 12. And it's one of the guiding principles and it's the right to have a voice and be heard, yeah. especially in decisions that impact on you. And this is so critical because it's a gateway to claiming all your other rights. And uh, when children know they have rights, it's incredibly empowering for them, especially those who are quite vulnerable. Uh, they feel they feel buoyed by the fact that they know Australia cares enough about its kids to have signed this treaty internationally and made all these promises to them. So, and that they have a right to ask for those things. Mm. Uh, and so, empowering children and building their voice and providing platforms for them to have a say is one of the really important duties we have as adults. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Tell me about uh, social conditions and the role that it plays in the mental health of adolescents. Is it a, with technology and, and bullying, is it, is it a, or 
is it becoming something that's ex extremely critical? Obviously, the advent of social media is, you know, it's a fundamental part of the lives of young people. You know, they don't see the offline world and the online world any differently. They just see it as their world. And so it is something that we, as older people, <laughs> need to grapple with. Mm. And we're not going to be able to shut them off from it. We're not going to be able to tell them not to do that because it is part of their lives. It's the way they communicate, socialise, learn. There are so many benefits to this technological, you know, um, you know, reform that we've had. It's massive transition that we've had. But it comes with risks, as any transition or mm. reform does. Uh, because, and one of the things is that it, it fuels unfiltered comments that can escalate and can hurt people. And we've seen that happen. Uh, and, but at the same time, it also provides an opportunity for support. Mm. So, and when you're thinking about your pebble in your pond, yeah. it is an opportunity to put a pebble, a good pebble in a pond yeah. and spread support yeah. uh, to kids. Uh, especially in terms of lots of kids want to be anonymous when they're talking about mental health issues. And here is technology provides that uh, opportunity to, to get support in an anonymous way. And the other thing with, so in terms of the dangers though, uh, in terms of escalating, um, escalating bullying or, or hurtfulness or meanness, which does impact strongly on adolescents, because they feel that very acutely. Mm. Everything's very acute when you're an adolescent. Yeah. Um, we do need to ensure we're educating kids about how to act in that space, how to withdraw from that space, and also how to be a good bystander in that space. Really important things. But I think we can work with kids to work that out. Yeah. Because they're already doing this. Yeah. Uh, so we need to build up on their learning in those spaces and, and spread the word about how to um, be a good digital citizen. Yeah. What do you think is the driving cause for suicide amongst children? Is it, is it a number, the combination of factors that we've spoken about already, or is it, do you feel like there's um, social pressure, where there's uh, pressure from, from others, external pressure? Well, in doing the work um, on suicide and self-harm, I have asked over the years for data from the Kids Helpline mm. to help me understand this a bit more. And I don't think we know exactly. And as I said before, I think all kids are different, their circumstances are different. But having said that, the Kids Helpline has been able to extract from its many, many thousands of contacts that it has from kids um, every day, <laughs> every year, mm. um, information about children who call up about self-harm and suicide and what are the co-presenting concerns. And that has been really enlightening. And the vast majority of kids who call up, it, it, the key co-presenting concern is um, anxiety and, um, and being overwhelmed emotionally. Now, that is a bit of a condition of adolescence as yeah. well. Um, the second uh, most prevalent uh, concern uh, that associated with suicide and self-harming ideation is mental health issues. 
So kids are already presenting with mental health issues, which may have been diagnosed and treated or not. Uh, but clearly that's an issue for kids. Uh, and, and we need to be responding in ways that work for them, not an adult-focused, centred response, mm. but a child-focused and centred response. And another concern in that space, in those high-level co-presenting concern, which is why I, one of the reasons I started down the track looking at family violence, was this whole notion of family conflict and how that was impacting on their suicidal or self-harming ideation. Do you talk about a holistic approach to this? What does it mean to you and how do you see the solution moving forward to this uh, so that we can improve um, on these statistics? Because When I talk about a holistic approach um, to children's mental health, I'm talking about seeing the child in their community and in their school and in their home and with their doctor. So all the people in the child's ecosystem yes. so you and all the places in the child's ecosystem uh, that need to be thought through in terms of how to support the child well uh, because that's how children are. They just mm. live in the world. Um, they're not siloed. And so those systems need to work together to have a focus on the child, but also to have a focus on the child's strengths and agency and rights. Uh, and together, if by looking holistically at the child, by honouring their rights, by helping and empowering them to be the co-producer of what they need, um, that is how we will prevent more deaths and lower the rates of self-harming among children. That's really interesting. I know you've got a lot of you've had a lot of experience with correctional services and kids. Yeah. Um, tell, tell me a bit about that, and 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 how is that progressing? Are we are we doing a better job in that, uh, or do you feel like we're really uh, there's a long way to go? Well, um, so from my perspective, I, I would prefer that children weren't ever. Um, incarcerated. Um, in my view, I think all you're doing is investing in criminal school. Um, you're entrenching criminal identities and associations and behaviours. And we know the earlier a child is, gets in contact with the, child tech, with, with the juvenile justice system, the more likely they are to go on to uh, commit more offences in, uh, in the future. So this isn't a good investment, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. So no. we do need to do much more to increase our diversionary programs so that children are diverted away from the justice system and into community-based programs that put them back on track or keep them on track uh, with their families, with their communities. Because when you go into one of these correctional facilities, you're away from all of those things. And that, in Australia, can be as young as 10. And so one of my other... Key points of advocacy um, is um, to raise the age of criminal responsibility. I really think there's only a few kids in the system under, say, 14, and we should be able to do something differently with them than to send them to jail. Uh, you spoke to Claire Mallinson um, recently, the director of Amnesty International Australia, about yeah. this very, very subject. 
Uh, do you feel like that's oh, is that might happen? Well, it's a growing. Um, there is a growing call for this around the non-government sector, and it is encouraging that the Australian Attorney General and the other Attorney Generals around the nation are actually looking into this issue at the moment. So there is an opportunity here to potentially um, change the law and change practice uh, in jurisdictions around Australia. And so it's a bit of a seize of the moment time. And, uh, and as I said, there's a range of people now advocating to raise the age of criminal responsibility. But the key to that is making sure we've got the diversionary programs in place for those kids who you know, may get into trouble uh, in that younger age group. What are we going to do about those? Now, there's only around 50 at any one time that are incarcerated uh, under 14. So, so we should be able to um, provide some alternative programmatic kind of arrangements within community for those kids. That, that makes sense. And that community focus, uh, if we can get to that point, uh, sounds like it, it would really benefit not only the kids but the future. Yeah, and look, you know, in the end, we want safe communities. Um, sending kids to jail um, where they meet people who are also got yeah. criminal histories and trajectories, uh, entrenching that idea of themselves as a criminal offender uh, who hasn't who misses who hasn't got a good education, who has no other aspirations. That's not safe for the future of the community either. Mm. So you're actually serving the community interest economically and safety-wise as well. So it's a win-win for everybody by diverting these young children out of the system. Well, it sounds like it, uh, it will be a challenge and, and hopefully we can get there at some point to create, if we elevate everything, at the end of the day, we want to create a, a better environment, a better yeah. uh, culture, a uh, more supportive environment for kids uh, and their upbringing so that they thrive. If, uh, what, just on to you personally now, is there something that you previously held a strong belief on that you've recently changed your mind? Uh, I know the world changes so quickly and, and, and the beliefs or behaviors of people uh, as things progress or as they go along, all of a sudden they start thinking, well, gee, I didn't actually think that that was right, and now oh, maybe that is, or is there anything that you can think of that, that uh, it's just, I like asking this question to see um, if, yeah, what people have changed as a result of uh, something they've had a strong belief on before. You know, um, my background's also in disability services, and um, I was just talking to somebody in the foyer here at the conference, and uh, uh, we were discussing how in the past there was children with disabilities, you know, with a range of disabilities, autism, other things, you know, this is sort of a long time ago, um, you, we would put them, they, they, and they would be seen to be um, self-harming, so, and we would put helmets on them while they bashed their heads against the wall. And, and of course now it's, we see it as self-harming and something that we should have been dealing with rather than putting a helmet on them so they wouldn't hurt themselves safe. too much, you know? Yeah. And of course, this was part of them crying out for something. And of course, we that wasn't a space 
we even thought of. They yeah. were a kid with a disability rather than a child who is self-harming and yeah. who happens to have a disability as well. Yeah. So we thought that was the disability doing that, but it was the child doing that. And they were asking for something and they were distressed about something and we weren't listening at that point. The other thing that I've probably become a bit more kind of uh, strong on is that you know, this access to pornography online is a big issue for kids. Yeah. And we know that it's affecting the relationships that they have um, with, you know, their partners. And it's also fueling domestic violence as well. And, and kids are very distressed about it too. Um, and they often come, up, come across it um, by mistake to start with, you know. And it's a very distressing material. And then they get, they, it gets normalised for them. So I'm probably getting to the point where I'm looking to, as well as to educate kids about what's real and what yeah. is real in a relationship, yeah. is that I think we should be trying to restrict access. Uh, and that's not something I usually think. I'm quite sort of, we've got to deal with the things in front of us. But I think restricting access to violent pornography online is probably you know something that I've come to think that we do need to be more paternalistic about so the kids can have a childhood yeah. without being confronted with all this stuff really early in their life that's really interesting yeah. if uh, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were 20 years old or when you were a child something what would you say what any advice that you would give to yourself that you would suggest? I would say that to little me, um, to believe in yourself, dream big, you mightn't get all the way there, but amazing things will happen to you in life if you're open to it. Wow, that's really, that's amazing. Who's been the biggest influence on your life to date? Is there one person or a couple? Well, probably my mother. Uh, my mother um, was a single parent raising me in the 60s and she had it really tough. And we weren't wealthy in any way. Yeah. Um, and I think from her and seeing her struggle but put me through school and do everything for me um, to make my life good and worked so hard her whole life, um, I think that gave me a sense of justice and injustice uh, and and that you really need to be sticking up for what's right in the world. Um, and I also saw it from the point of view of families who struggle and, um, and I, so I think it's her because she's such a powerful individual. Um, it wasn't always plain sailing as a child. Yeah. Um, we struggled, uh, but we got through. And I think her commitment to get me a good education and also to surround me with other adults who I could rely on in my life uh, really helped me get through the tough periods. I got a little respect for that. That's, uh, that's really interesting. Uh, and if you have any other any books you would suggest to people, that, is there a book you've read that's been inspiring? Oh, I'm reading at the moment. Yeah. Uh, Sapiens. So I'd really recommend this, this book. 
can't remember the author's name, but okay. I'm always bad at the author's names. It's okay. It's a fantastic book. It's why the Homo sapiens triumphed over Neanderthal. We both had brains, but why did we um, triumph wow. and dominate the world? And we have done ever since. And it's so interesting. It's, it's really about contemporary philosophy. And it's something we really need to start thinking about how we get together as groups, what we believe in and why, and how we treat each other. Uh, and it's it's so fascinating book, so I encourage everybody to read Sapiens. There you go. If you don't have Sapiens, get it on your book list. Uh, what, what does uh, what's the future hold for you? Uh, you've been six six and a half years or so in the role. What where do you think uh, you're heading? I don't know. I think going back to that um, message to my little self: yeah. be open, and amazing things will happen. My term finishes in uh, March next year. Okay. I am, I've already been extended once um, to do some particular work. One is in the area of child safe organisations, which I'm really passionate about. I'm building organisations that honour children, keep them safe and understand their rights. Is but, that with the national principles? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. I did read about that. Yeah. Uh, and the other is to... Uh, be part of the process as Australia reports to the United Nations on its progress on the, uh, meeting the, its obligations under the Convention on the Rights of the Child. It will appear in September this year. So it's a great opportunity wow. to put what needs to happen for kids in this country on the government's agenda. And obviously mental health is one of those. Well, so I, what, your, your question about what's next for me, yes, I'm going to be open to any amazing thing. Yeah, but there's always Uber and Deliveroo, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yep, you can always put those funky sunglasses on and, and walk around. Uh, well, that's great. I, Megan, it's been such a pleasure uh, talking to you today. Uh, we appreciate the time. The work that you've done over the last six years is is amazing. I still know that there is a very big challenge ahead mm. uh, with your role uh, and the role that children play and how we can uh, help affect that for the better. Uh, thank you very much and thank you for your service uh, and um, wish you all the best. Thanks, Sam. It's a pleasure. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.